0: is crimes of the centuries Lisa Garradini was a soft featured woman with a delicate sly smile Because she breathed her last breath more than half a millennium ago, we don't know a whole lot about her life beyond that she was born in the late 15th century and married off at age 15. Still, whether you recognize her name initially, I promise you, you know her face. And part of the reason you know her face is because of the time she was stolen in one of the most daring, yet non-deadly, crimes of the 20th century.
1: When Mona Lisa was stolen, she left a masterpiece. After her recovery, she returned to the Louvre bigger than just art.
0: Obviously, this crime is a bit different than our usual fare on two counts. First, it's an art heist. And second, it didn't happen in America. We're crossing the pond for this one. That said, this story was in every major newspaper in the U.S. for months. Not only that, but the first suspects in the crime happened to be high-profile American businessmen. And when that suspicion didn't pan out, police arrested one of the world's foremost figures in the 20th century art world, a name you'll surely recognize today. This story begins the morning of August 21st, 1911 in Paris, France. The Musée de Louvre began its existence as a fortress built in 1190. It's a jaw-droppingly impressive place, sitting on the right bank of the Seine River. Chances are, if you've been to Paris and did anything touristy at all, hitting the museum was on the list. After some 200 years as a fortress, the Louvre was converted into a home for King Charles V. In the 16th century, it got a proper makeover, with the idea that it would forevermore serve as a royal palace. That was spearheaded by King Francis I, who started rebuilding the place in the French Renaissance style. Francis had a soft spot for art, which he began collecting and displaying inside of his home. The work that Francis started continued long after his death. Construction projects kind of never ended in this era, it seems until a subsequent king decided to halt it. This king was the gold-loving Louis XIV, who shifted his attention to a new palace he wanted to build in Versailles. That left the Louvre with less to do, so instead of serving as the primary residence of the French kings, it instead housed a couple of universities and also became an unofficial museum, displaying artwork from the royal collection. In that royal collection was a small portrait painted by a later-in-life Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo, of course, was arguably the first Renaissance man, as in capital R, capital M. Born in Italy after the ignorance of the Middle Ages, Leonardo was one of those people who wanted to learn everything he could. That's why he dabbled in everything. How he managed to excel at so much is another matter altogether. Regardless, he was a painter, a sculptor, and an inventor. He began his portrait of Lisa Gherardini in 1503. Instead of using canvas, he used a panel of poplar wood, and rather than painting with the thick goop we usually picture when we envision paint, he used a thin glaze with just a hint of pigment. That's one of the reasons the Mona Lisa stood out immediately as a masterpiece. It wasn't just the image itself. It was the depth of the thing, created by one painstaking layer on top of another, that made it so mesmerizing and lifelike. The way that light interacted with those layers made it so that the woman in the image looked slightly different every time you tweaked your angle. That's why seeing a copy of the Mona Lisa just doesn't do it justice. It'd be like scanning a sculpture. It's hard to appreciate if you're not viewing it in person. Now, the pictured woman has long been described as an enigma, but not because her identity wasn't known. She was Lisa Gherardini, the third wife of Francesco del Giocondo of Florence, whom she married at age 15. We know the broad strokes of her history, that she was born July 15, 1479, into an aristocratic family in Florence, who, by the time she came around, had lost a lot of clout. Her father was a farmer, producing wheat, wine, and olive oil. Lisa was the oldest of seven children, four of them girls. She got married on March 5, 1495, to a cloth and silk merchant who had been married twice before because there wasn't a hefty dowry involved, historians tend to think she probably married her husband for love. Imagine that. The couple had six children, one of them a baby daughter who died at birth. The rest survived childhood. Now, it's likely that her husband, Francesco, commissioned her portrait in 1503, because that's when he was able to afford a proper house. Up until then, the family had been sharing their living space, which was pretty common, even for middle-class families at the time. Also pretty common was to pay dudes to paint portraits of your wives in celebration of buying your own house. Because why not? There's quite likely more than one Mona Lisa, similar to the one on coffee mugs and t-shirts today. We think this because other artists made sketches of Leonardo's Mona Lisa, as in they drew something while looking at his paintings, and the background is slightly different. Plus, Leonardo had a habit of creating multiple versions of the same painting. Regardless, the one in the Louvre is the only one we have today. In 1911, it was already one of the most renowned paintings in the world. And the idea that it was totally unknown is exaggerated. I searched digitized newspaper archives and found the painting mentioned in 1813 in the London Morning Chronicle, and the 1823 London Morning Post, and the 1824 United States Gazette. Those references certainly weren't the first. They're just the first in this particular archive. In 1550, Giorgio Vasari published the earliest known biography of Leonardo, in which he describes the Mona Lisa as having eyes with that luster and watery sheen, which are always seen in life. And around them were all those rosy and pearly tints, as well as the lashes, which cannot be represented without the greatest subtlety. The eyebrows, through his having shown the manner in which the hair spring from the flesh, here more close and here more scanty, and curve according to the pores of the skin, could not be more natural. Just 31 years after Leonardo's death, it's clear Mona Lisa was valued as a masterpiece. It wasn't just the painting method, but also how the woman in the image was presented, From PBS's Better Know the Mona Lisa. While many portraits of the time were more closely cropped and painted in profile, Lisa is oriented more frontally and shown in half length. Her hands are included, with her right resting delicately over top the left. And she's dressed fairly unremarkably, not trying to show off with the latest trends. Then, of course, there's something about the way Leonardo conveyed on Lisa's face the softest hint of a smile. There's a knowingness to it, a smile in spite of everything, as if she knows she's caught in this painting, in her own turbulent time, looking out at us, whoever we are, in our turbulent time, which is perhaps what makes it so indelible an image. As the years, and then the decades, then the centuries passed, her star kept rising, Poems were written about the so-called dark-eyed nymph. She inspired songs.
1: Mona
0: Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. In 1909, a Washington, D.C. newspaper called The Evening Star ran a story called The Mystery of the Smile of the Mona Lisa. A line from the piece, Mona Lisa is not a woman, but the woman, which every man ought to find, but sometimes misses. So when someone noticed August 21st, 1911, the bare hooks where the painting usually hung, it seemed impossible. Who would steal a painting so famous that they surely could never sell it? Some were certain the piece would be recovered within hours. But it turned out they underestimated her thief. August 21st, 1911, was a Monday, which meant that the Louvre was closed to the public. It also meant that the staffing was light, the security just a skeleton crew, from a documentary called Stealing the Mona Lisa. When the
1: museum's maintenance director makes his early morning rounds, all is as it should be came up on the ground floor of the museum through the staircase and passed through the Salon Carré on the way to the Grand Gallery, and he noticed the Mona Lisa. And then he went on his way to start that day's work.
0: That was about 7 a.m. About an hour and a half later, the same guy walked by again and noticed that the painting was off its hooks. But this wasn't alarming, because at this point in the Louvre's history, a painting missing from the wall wasn't unusual. Photography had finally become ubiquitous enough that museums worldwide were taking pictures to document and archive their inventories. You'd think this would have been done methodically at the world's largest museum, but not so much. Photographers documenting the images didn't have to sign out a painting before taking it down to photograph it. They didn't even have to ask beforehand. They would just swing by, grab a priceless work of art, and take it to a studio for copying for however long they wanted it. The maintenance director assumed that's what happened on this Monday. The next day, a local painter swung by the Louvre to paint a copy of the Mona Lisa.
1: Louis Baroud is an artist who made his name copying famous paintings for tourists.
0: Lots of painters did this at the time. The only rule about copying a famous painting from the collection was that you had to use a different size canvas to ensure there was no way your version could ever dupe anyone and be passed off as the original. And copies were big business, which meant counterfeiting was a real concern. And when the amateur painter pointed out to a dozing security guard the bare hooks on the wall where the Mona Lisa should have hung, no one panicked at first.
1: And it's only then that the guard goes to the photography studio and the photographers have no idea what he's talking about. And that's when the alarms go off.
0: Now, if you've seen the Mona Lisa in person, you'll know it's relatively small at about 21 by 30 inches. I mean, for reference, a movie poster is like 27 by 40 inches. Its size is one of tourists' most common complaints. In fact, it's so small I almost walked right by it. Still, that's a bit big to smuggle out of a world-renowned museum unnoticed, so the first thought was that the painting must be inside the building somewhere. It may have been taken and hidden. It may have been taken and just put on one side somewhere. Museum officials held out hope that the painting would be recovered before the general public even learned it was missing. So they began a fervent search, which turned up something art historian Noah Charney.
1: They found the frame and the glass protective casing of the Mona Lisa discarded in the service stairwell. And that's really when they say, oh my goodness, this must really have been stolen.
0: In came the police. Inspector Louis Lapine headed Paris's department. Lapine, who had started his career as a lawyer, was a short man with a huge reputation. He'd held his post first from 1893 to 1897 as a sort of reform boss meant to clean up a corrupt organization. After four years, he moved on to other governmental posts. But when civil unrest started agitating the city in 1899, Lapine was asked to come back to head the agency. He was ahead of his time when it came to incorporating forensic science into investigations. Under his helm, fingerprinting became a key method to identify people. He also helped devise methods to detect forgery and lock tampering.
1: Louis Lepine has a sterling and ironclad reputation. The Sherlock Holmes of his day, someone who is guaranteed to crack the case.
0: And he was the first head of the Paris police to introduce criminology, the study of crime and deviant behavior. The idea was that if you understood why criminals did what they did, you could begin to figure out the type of person who might have committed a certain crime you're trying to solve. In short, this was a precursor to profiling.
1: He wanted a dossier, a thick dossier of the criminal. He wanted the details.
0: Le Pan is well-organized, he's systematic, he's very experienced, he knows what he's doing, but he's also concerned about the blow to national pride of a picture being stolen from the Louvre. Lapine headed up interrogations with museum staff, current staff, of course, but he also asked for names of any past workers as well. The thinking was that whoever stole the painting knew it and the museum well. This is because the timing of the crime was just too perfect, occurring on a Monday when the museum was closed and lightly staffed, plus the ease with which it seemed to occur. And even a small painting isn't easy to unhook from a wall if you don't know how it's connected. Lapine developed some theories, but found few hard leads. One thing he did find was a fingerprint on the glass of the frame that had been ditched by the thief in the stairwell. It was a good, clear fingerprint too. So he called in an expert. Alphonse Bertillon was, like Lapine, considered one of the finest investigators in the world. He'd started in a clerical position with the police. Here he copied and filed small identification cards with recorded descriptions of daily apprehended criminals. This is from a video I found made by McKenna Burns, Forensic Science. Now,
1: Bertillion was a very structured and organized man. Thus, he found that the disorderly and brief manner in which the criminals were being inadequately identified was frustrating. The system was not useful at all in the tracking of recidivists or repeat offenders.
0: So, he developed new ways to track offenders. He standardized the process of taking pictures of criminals. In other words, you can thank Bertillon for the mugshot. And Bertillon didn't invent fingerprinting by any means, but he is cited as the first in Europe to use fingerprints to solve a crime. Truth is, though, he happened to think that there was a better way to ID people than the whirls and loops on the pads of their fingertips. He thought that a person's measurements were more important, that all people could be distinguished from one another if you knew things like the length and width of their heads, their seated height from head to ass, the length of their middle finger, the length of their left foot. It was called the Bertillon system, Not surprisingly, Bertillon considered the Bertillon system superior to fingerprinting, though he didn't shun fingerprints entirely. He just figured keeping the prints from one's right hand was sufficient. Guess from which hand the print was that Lapine had recovered from Mona Lisa's glass. In fairness, it would have taken months to go through the hard copies of known criminals' fingerprint cards and compare by hand each and every one to the print discovered on the glass. So it's not like Bertillon's bias cost anyone this case. Still, after this theft, agencies started collecting prints from both hands. Meanwhile, journalists worldwide began reporting the crime of the century.
2: It was massive news. A British newspaper headline read, Paris has been startled. In the U.S., the Washington Post wrote the art world was thrown into consternation. The New York Times wrote that the theft had caused such a sensation that Parisians, for the time being, have forgotten the rumors of war. War was about three years away at this point, by the way.
0: It's worth noting the painting's theft pushing global tensions to the bottom of the front page caused some to think that this was all a false flag operation, a governmental prank to distract people from paying attention to the grim world stage conspiracy theories are not a new phenomenon. Lapine didn't help matters by refusing to hold press conferences. If you give reporters the silent treatment, they're gonna turn to other sources for insight. So the theories printed were rampant and varied. Some people thought it was a politically motivated crime committed by a rival, like Germany.
2: The Brits were also blamed, of course.
0: This is from the infographics shows How I Stole the
2: Mona Lisa. They'd only been fighting the French for the good part of a thousand years, but no, it wasn't them.
0: Others thought it must have been a man so obsessed with the image of the Mona Lisa that he'd fallen in love and stolen her. Still others figured it must have been a crass American billionaire. This theory was widespread enough that Americans with money, who also happened to collect art, were seriously
2: questioned. Folks whispered that it was the incredibly wealthy, art-loving, baking magnate, J.P. Morgan Jr. who was behind the theft. He denied the accusations and even said a million dollars and no questions asked if someone just handed it in.
0: Morgan said he would return the painting to France if he got his hands on it, but no one stepped forward. People of the world were in straight-up denial about the Mona Lisa's theft. The museum stayed shuttered for a week and then reopened. Thousands of Parisians filed through to stare at the blank spot on the wall of the Salon Carré from a PBS documentary.
2: The public came
1: just to see the void where the painting had been hung, just to see the nails which held her.
0: First, there was outrage, then there was humor.
1: There was a chorus line on, in one of the cabarets that came out all dressed as the Mona Lisa. I think they were topless. <laughs> they printed sheet music about the theft of Mona Lisa, which they sang in the
0: cafes. Movie stars and singers dressed up like Mona Lisa for photographs. Postcards with her image were selling like crazy.
1: There were jokes, there were riddles, there were cartoons. Somebody wrote to the newspapers and said, when are they going to take the Eiffel Tower next? That's obviously got to go.
0: To investigators, of course, the theft was no laughing matter. They worked around the clock trying to recover this stolen painting, relying largely on the many interviews they conducted with anyone and everyone connected to the Louvre. One plumber recalled for Inspector Lapine an odd interaction he had had the morning of Mona Lisa's theft. He said he'd been walking up the stairs when he spotted a fellow worker. He recognized the guy as such because he was wearing the same smock assigned to employees. And that guy was futzing with an exit door in a stairwell. For some reason, the door handle had been removed. And so this worker couldn't leave the building. He had with him a parcel that didn't make much of an impression. And he asked for help in opening the door.
1: To which the plumber replied, All right, take it easy, take it easy.
0: This is Seymour Wright, author of The Day They Stole the Mona Lisa.
1: I have pliers, I'll open the door. So he opened the door.
0: While combing through past employees, Inspector Lapine came across a subcontractor called Gobiet.
1: The Gobiet firm was significant because the Louvre had commissioned them to make protective glass cases for some of the works in the museum after an anarchist had successfully slashed an Angra painting with a knife as a political protest.
0: Five men had worked in the Louvre on the glassing project between 1907 and 1909. Four of those five willingly came in for questioning, but one didn't. He was a 29-year-old man named Vincenzo Perugia with a criminal record. Vincenzo Perugia is an Italian migrant worker. He's not well-educated, he was poor, very poor, and he probably drinks too much. It was an interesting development, but Lapine wasn't convinced. He viewed Perugia as a lowbrow common criminal, and Lapine was certain that whoever had stolen the Leonardo painting was an aristocrat, highbrow, probably an artist himself, which is why he ignored this lead and focused instead on a brash young artist who'd been making waves in Paris as something of a counterculture leader. His name was Pablo Picasso, and he was about to be accused of the highest profile crime in the world. Months passed after the theft of the Mona Lisa, and investigators were no closer to figuring out where she had gone. Finally, they got a tip directing them to Pablo Picasso, the Spanish artist who would ultimately be best known for co-creating cubism with George Brock. In 1911, Picasso was the consummate bohemian artist, living in an artist studio in Montmartre, littered with cigarettes and paintings, a home he shared with his lover, Fernand Olivier. Noah Charney again.
1: Pablo Picasso, was the exact profile of what Lupin thought he was looking for. He was erudite, international. Even better, he was a foreigner.
0: Even better than that, he was, in a roundabout way, an art thief. A man named Joseph de Perret had palmed several statues from the Louvre around 1906. That guy had given some of the statues to a poet named Guillaume Apollinaire, who was one of Picasso's closest friends. Apollinaire, in turn, had given Picasso two of the stolen statues. After the Mona Lisa was stolen...
2: Joseph Jerry Piré walked into the Paris Journal and told the reporters that he was an art thief, and he knew where the Mona Lisa was. The authorities suddenly started grinning like the woman in the painting. One thing led to another, and the gendarmes were knocking at the door of a young Pablo Picasso.
0: This is Joe Medeiros, director of The Mona Lisa's Missing. The police go to Picasso.
1: Who's... Who's sweating? Who's terrified? Who's afraid that he's going to be, you know, at best deported, at at worst, you know, sent to uh, Devil's
0: Island? There, they found two statues stolen from the Louvre. If Picasso had hoped to play dumb about them, he couldn't.
1: Those Iberian statue heads were painted by Picasso into the very famous painting, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, painted in 1907 and considered the very first work of modern art.
0: Things did not look good for Apollinaire and Picasso. Both were arrested. When they appeared before a judge, their insistence that they didn't steal the Mona Lisa was undermined by Picasso blurting an outright lie. He claimed he had never laid eyes on Apollinaire before, despite the fact that they were known to be close friends. It's maybe no surprise that after this arrest, the two were never again quite as close as they had been. Other art thievery aside, police had nothing concrete on Picasso related to the Leonardo painting, so he ultimately was dropped as a suspect. It was a huge blow to Lapine and his reputation. Months turned into a year, and then a year turned into two. Authorities were no closer to finding the Mona Lisa than they'd been when she first went missing. Hopes of ever recovering her were fading, Inspector Lapine's reputation took a huge hit as the trail went cold. Finally, in November 1913, 28 months after the painting had disappeared, an Italian antiques dealer named Alfredo Geri got a letter in the mail from someone calling himself Leonard, as in Leonardo O. Get it? The writer claimed to have the Mona Lisa in his possession and said he wanted to turn it over to someone in Italy for a reward, of course. See, he didn't like that the painting had ended up in France when it had been painted by an Italian master. Now, whether he was confused about its providence is unclear. It's true that Napoleon Bonaparte had stolen priceless works of art throughout his reign, many of which did end up at the Louvre at least temporarily, But the Mona Lisa wasn't one of them. In reality, toward the end of Leonardo's life, he had accepted a position in the court of King Francois I, a friend and patron. When Leonardo died in Paris, still in the king's employ, the painting was bequeathed to Francois. Francois hung the portrait in his own residence, and it passed down to subsequent kings. In 1804, she was installed in what would become her permanent home, the Louvre which had only opened 11 years prior. Jaurie was intrigued by Leonard's letter, but ultimately ignored it. Then a month later, this Leonard fellow showed up in person to repeat the offer. He said he would hand over the Mona Lisa for 500,000 lire, which was by no means a paltry sum, but still a fraction of what the painting was worth. Jaurie said, sure, sounds reasonable. Still skeptical, he agreed to meet with Leonard at a hotel in Florence. When he and a colleague arrived, the man who greeted them pulled a white wooden trunk from beneath his bed, from How I Stole the Mona Lisa.
2: Jerry was aghast, shocked, when what he saw were, in his own words, wretched objects, broken shoes, a mangled hat, a pair of pliers, plastering tools, a smock, some white paintbrushes, and even a mandolin. Damn. Léonard wasn't done, though. He emptied the trunk and then opened a secret compartment. Jerry's eyes sparkled. He almost wept. In front of him was the Mona Lisa, marvelously preserved.
0: Jerry had arrived armed with a description of some unique markings on the back of the painting. When he turned over the painting handed to him by Léonard, it had the same markings. Jerry told Léonard that he would contact the Italian government and help secure him the reward he had requested. Leonard was pleased. He headed off to await word about the reward, and after an hour or two, a knock came on his hotel door. It was the police. After this Leonard fellow was arrested, his real identity was uncovered. His name was Vincenzo Perugia, and he was the Italian contractor I mentioned earlier, the one that Lapine had dismissed as a suspect soon after the theft because he was supposedly too lowbrow. Lapine had been retired for a few months by this time, so a successor reached out with news of this arrest to Louvre officials who thought he was full of it.
2: But the tale didn't ring true. Some wretch had just walked out with the Mona Lisa? No way. The next day, they issued a statement to the media. The curators of the Louvre wished to say nothing until they've seen the painting.
0: Once they did, they authenticated it and began arranging for the Mona Lisa's return. Instead of Perugia collecting any reward, The man he'd contacted, jury, pocketed the finder's fee. Perugia was arrested. His explanation of the crime proved he was no criminal mastermind. The Louvre just had really awful security practices. Some had assumed that the thief must have cleverly hidden in the museum overnight, explaining how he had gained access, but nope. Perugia simply walked in, dressed in the white smock of a worker, right alongside all the other workers. He walked up to the painting, lifted it off its hooks, wrapped his smock around it, and got the unwitting plumber to help him open a door and walk out of the building. It was just that simple. For two years, he had kept the masterpiece hidden beneath the false bottom of that wooden trunk. The reaction to the news was mixed. Many in Italy thought Prusia was the hero in the story, not the villain. For starters, he was a poor man who'd committed a crime so seemingly sophisticated that he'd fooled some of the world's brightest investigators. There was a Robin Hood element to what he'd done, especially because his stated reason for stealing the painting was to return it to its supposedly rightful home.
1: He may be misguided, but claiming to steal the masterpiece for patriotic reasons strikes a chord back home. So in Italy, Perugia isn't seen as a thief, but a patriot, and his countrymen refused to extradite him to France.
0: This was a coup for Perugia, who felt safe enough in Italy to plead guilty to the theft. He was sentenced to 12 months behind bars, of which he served just seven months.
1: It may be surprising that Vincenzo Perugia would steal the Mona Lisa successfully, and keep it kidnapped for years and get a very small prison sentence. So it was essentially a slap on the wrist.
0: It's worth noting that any notion of altruism being Perugia's real goal is undercut a tad by the fact that he asked for 500,000 lire. But whatever. What truly makes this a crime of the century is the enormous impact the theft had.
1: Logically speaking, it's not doing anything particularly distinctive or interesting, but its impact internationally, thanks to the dissemination of its story in the international news media, catapults the Mona Lisa from being a very good painting by a reasonably well-known Italian Renaissance painter into being an international icon, recognizable to anyone, whether or not they had an interest in art before.
0: Today, there are Mona Lisa jigsaw puzzles, mouse pads, coffee mugs. I found Mona Lisa paints and bars of soap online. There are parodies of the Mona Lisa featuring Lisa with a joint, Lisa blowing a bubble, Lisa wearing sunglasses, Lisa replaced by the Hello Kitty cat. I typed Mona Lisa into imdb.com, and there are some 200 titles related to the phrase, including Godzilla Meets Mona Lisa. I tried really hard to find a soundbite, but couldn't. The Mona Lisa holds the Guinness World Record as having the highest ever insurance value for a painting. It was assessed at $100 million in December 1962. That value today would be around $860 million. Today, the Mona Lisa is one of the most secured paintings in the world. Six people are guarding the painting at all times, which is itself protected behind a thick bulletproof window. Perugia's theft affected more than just a single painting, though. It also changed the face of crime internationally. It created the notion that there might be people who were willing to pay lots of money for these pictures. This notion has proved true and led to art theft becoming the third highest grossing criminal trade worldwide every year, trailing only the drug and arms trades. An estimated 50,000 pieces of art are stolen every single year, which according to the FBI and Interpol, adds up to billions of dollars of losses annually across the globe. As for Perugia, he was indeed something of a patriot After his release from prison, he served in the Italian Army during World War I and was held as a prisoner of war by Austria-Hungary for two years. After his release, he changed his name, got married, had a daughter, and returned to France. The man who had catapulted Mona Lisa into superstar status himself died of a heart attack in relative anonymity on October 8, 1925, his 44th birthday to research this case which was chosen because of husband Elijah's suggestion I do an art heist I read Vanished Smile by R.A. Scotty note that the documentary Stealing the Mona Lisa Art Theft of the Century was a great and useful documentary but I couldn't individually ID some of the speakers because the filmmakers didn't always include chyrons with names if I ever meet those filmmakers I'm gonna ask them why Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook
2: page.